Good evening. You know, in 1946, author Gertrude Stein became very ill while on a trip to Europe. She was rushed to a hospital in France where it was discovered that she had a very advanced form of cancer. The surgeon did an operation, but there was really nothing he could do. And when she learned of the diagnosis, she asked this question, what's the answer? In other words, what are we going to do? What's the strategy going forward? What's the treatment? Nobody said anything. The people gathered around just stood there in silence. She asked it again, what's the answer? Nobody said anything. So she just laughed and said, okay, what's the question? You know, when it comes to studying Scripture, we often proof text our way through the Bible, which is not a terrible thing, really. It's almost unavoidable, right? But we've got to be careful in using this sort of matter of operation when it comes to studying Scripture because oftentimes we can be asking the wrong question. Case in point is Romans 10, 9, and 10. You'll read it with me. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, many in the religious world see this as an answer to a question. And what's the question? What must I do to be saved? Or, Another question related to this passage, do I have to be baptized? Understand, Paul is not answering either one of those questions here. And that is not, or those are not, the questions that the Romans were asking. They're not asking those questions. He's not answering those questions. There are other scriptures that answer those questions for us. For instance, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks what he must do to be saved, Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. When the Philippian jailer asks the question, the reply is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in the house, and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. When Paul, who was Saul at the time, asked the question, what must I do? Jesus says to him, go into Damascus and there you will find what is it appointed for you. And he arrives at Damascus. He's introduced to a guy by the name of Ananias who says to him, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins and call on his name. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, we know this sermon given by Peter and after the people there were pricked to the heart, they asked Peter and the apostles, Brethren, what must we do? And he tells them, Repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, which is it? What do I have to do to be saved? Go and sell off everything I own? Give it to the poor? Then follow Jesus? Do I just have to believe like the Philippian jailer? Do I have to do like Paul and get up and be baptized? Do you have to repent and be baptized, as it was told to the crowd that day in Acts chapter 2? The very fact that there are multiple answers tells us that there's just not one specific answer, right? 
that it involves a process, that there's more than just one thing involved. Sometimes we can answer a question with a good answer, but perhaps not the best answer, right? So my beloved Arkansas Razorbacks are going to play Greg Evans' beloved Gonzaga Bulldogs in the Sweet 16. And you could ask me, Chris, who do you think is going to win that game? And I could tell you whoever scores the most points. And I would be exactly right. That is a good answer. Because I guarantee you, in any athletic contest where they keep score, the one who scores the most points is going to win. But you're probably not asking me for that answer. You're probably asking me because you want to know my ideas about who might win the game and why. Do you think Gonzaga is going to win or Arkansas is going to win? That's probably really the question you're getting at, right? And I could say, well, I think Arkansas is going to win because they play good defense or Gonzaga is going to win because they're all eight feet tall. I mean, I could give you a lot of different opinions, but that's really what you're after, right? So the good answer would be whoever scores the most points. The better answer would be what my opinion is because that's really what you were asking. Sometimes we can answer a right question in a good way, but not the best way. So, what do I have to do to be saved? And I might answer, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Is that a good answer? Absolutely. It's a biblical answer. Is it the best answer? No, and the reason why is because it's incomplete. Here's what it really boils down to. When we're looking at Romans chapter 10, verse 10, here's really what it all boils down to. Is Jesus your king? That's really what, is, what Paul is driving at here. Is Jesus your king? And do you acknowledge him as such? To understand the immediate context of Paul's words, you have to understand Paul's purpose of writing this letter. It was to encourage, which was the purpose of really all of his letters, and he was encouraging the Romans to be unified. Unity was a big deal to Paul. He talked about it over and over again, and you see that theme play out in many of his writings. He's talking about how Jesus saves both Jew and Gentile, and therefore both must learn to live together as God's covenant people. But another key feature of the book of Romans is found in the opening and closing chapters. They're bookends. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, it reads, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles in behalf of his name. You skip to the end? Romans chapter 16, verse 26. But now has been disclosed and through the scriptures of the prophets in accordance with the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. For Paul, faith was meant to be lived. For Paul, faith was an action word. It did something. So he's encouraging both Jew and Gentile to live out their faith. And one key way of doing this is by getting along. Get along with one another. Be on the same page. Jews in the first century had a hard time getting along with the Gentiles. For many reasons, they looked down their nose at them. But one of the main reasons that Paul is addressing is because they believed that they needed to be circumcised and live by the law. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The law has been fulfilled. It served its purpose. With Jesus now, all those who come to him, who believe in him, who repent, who confess and are baptized, those are the ones that will be saved. Circumcision holds no sway, nor does the law any longer. So when we come to chapter 10, we see that Paul is not addressing the question, do I have to be baptized? That's already been answered. These folks have been baptized. 
You know, these folks aren't asking, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul's saying, just confess with your mouth, with Jesus in your heart, sinner's prayer, right? No, these people have been saved. They're not lost. He's talking to Christians. So they're not asking those questions, and he's not answering those questions. The question Paul is addressing is, am I saved by grace or by law? That's really the question. Am I saved by law or by faith in Jesus? It's righteousness based on the law versus righteousness based on faith. And to rely on the law to save you will do the opposite of what you're seeking. So put your faith in Jesus and let him do the saving. Notice verse 9 again. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What would it mean if a first century Christian or even a first century Roman citizen, let's just say that. What would it mean if a first century Roman citizen confessed with his mouth that Caesar is Lord? It would mean without a doubt that he swears his allegiance to Caesar, to the emperor. The point Paul is making is that when Jews and Gentiles confess Jesus as Lord, they are swearing their allegiance to the king. Which means that it doesn't matter if they've been circumcised, doesn't matter if they keep the Sabbath, doesn't matter what they eat, doesn't matter what days they observe as holy or not. What matters, and the only thing that truly matters, is that Jesus is their king. They confess him as king of their lives. And if he is, is their king, they are saved and they are to live as brothers and sisters for the king and the kingdom. So Paul's talking about swearing one's allegiance to the right God, to the right king. And the people had to decide, will they declare their allegiance to the emperor or to the Messiah? Understanding that swearing your allegiance to the Messiah, making Jesus your king, would put you at odds with the Roman government and would bear repercussions. Will they rely on the law or the king to save them? That's the right question. Not, do I have to be baptized? That question has already been answered. You can go to Romans chapter 6 and see where Paul answers that question. Paul's purpose is to bring about living faith. Notice it again. Notice how the complete Jewish Bible renders Romans 9 and 10. If you acknowledge publicly with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord and trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be delivered. For with the heart, one goes on trusting and thus continues toward righteousness, while with the mouth, one keeps on making public acknowledgement and thus continues toward deliverance. Did you catch the continuous action? Confession is not something you do one time before you're baptized. It's not a one-time deal. It's not a one-shot statement you make before you get baptized. Confession is a lifestyle. It is ongoing, and it is the result of a faith on the move, a faith in action. Paul's words were never meant to be reduced down to some phraseology that we give before we get baptized. Confession is a lifestyle. That's what Paul is getting at. Every day, we are swearing our allegiance to the king. We are telling the world that we serve the king. We're proclaiming his kingdom. If you look at a few passages with me, the first one, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. It reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, 
He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you look at Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 36, it says, As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. One more. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Did you notice a commonality among all those scriptures? We could have read more, but did you notice a commonality among all of them? They all said the same thing. They all confessed the same thing because that's what confession is from a biblical viewpoint. It's saying the same thing. The word is homologio. It's a compound word. Homos, which means same, and legio, meaning speak. In a literal sense, homologio, uh, I should say, means to speak that which agrees with something that others speak or maintain. So confession expresses our agreement with what God holds and declares to be true. Now, we know that confession can also be an admission of guilt. We know that confession can also be professing, like when we evangelize, professing you know, the gospel or, or saying publicly with our mouths what we believe. What we see in the three passages that I just read is that Peter, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Martha all professed that which is in accordance with what Jesus declared to be true. That is confession. They confessed it with their mouths, but their lips and their tongues were not the only thing involved. Their words stemmed from a heart that Jesus ruled. Confession is a statement of faith that comes from a conviction of the heart. Confessing is about telling the world that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was put on trial, that he was crucified, that he died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and at some point he's going to return. That's what we are confessing. We base not only our faith, but our entire livelihood on these facts. We profess all that he is and all that he represents for us. We are declaring with our mouths that we are showing with our lives that we are willing to live for the Lord no matter the cost. Confessing is not simply some churchy statement that we make. It's not just some phraseology that we employ like before baptism. That's important because that is a public declaration that we are giving our lives to Christ. That's important, but that's not the only time it's important. It's a conviction of the heart that is expressed with our mouths. In simplest form, it's faith spoken. That's what confession is. So every year, I go to Breckenridge, Texas. I don't know why, but every year they've asked me to come and speak at their family VBS. And I've done that for four or five years now, going back again this year. But this past summer, before 
I headed over to Breckenridge. I got a message from a young lady in the church there. It's Elliott Street Church of Christ. And she had said that her grandmother is 94 and is not really able to get out and go to church, but she watches the television program every Sunday morning. And she would love to meet you. Said she lives across the street from the church. It'd be really easy to stop in. Would you mind stopping in and saying hello to her? And I said, absolutely, I'd love to do that. And so I stopped in and I met this sweet lady and we had a great conversation. But as we're talking, David Robinette pops up on, on the news doing the sports. And like you can tell, she ain't paying too much attention to me. <laughs> She's watching David Robinette. And so I just looked at her and I said, you know, uh, I go to church with David. And she goes, really? She goes, you know, he seems like he'd be really silly. And I go, you're exactly right. He is pretty silly. He's a great guy. He's pretty silly. But you know what? I had no problem confessing that I knew somebody famous. And that's what it means when we talk about confession. We are confessing that we know somebody famous that he knows us. And we don't care who knows. Right? We're not backing down from this. We love Jesus. We give our lives to him. He loves us. He gave his life for us. We are making a public declaration. I know him. I know him. Not only do I know him, I live for him. I trust my life to him. He is a rock that doesn't roll. We all know someone famous. Jesus is our rescuer and our friend. And how eager are we to tell other people about him? I want you to notice what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men... I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. When Jesus confesses a person before his Father, he claims him as his own and pleads his own cause. That's what we do when we profess Jesus. We claim him as our own. We plead his cause. We are the voice of his truth. We are his mouthpiece that declares the good news to all of those who will listen it's what it is. It's a lifestyle. It's who we are. It's what we're about. But did you notice that it's also a salvation issue? Did you catch that? If you're not willing to confess Jesus in this life, then he's not willing to confess you. If you deny him, he will deny you. In this life, we have the opportunity either to acknowledge him or deny him by what we do and don't do. By what we say and don't say. It's not just our mouth that speaks, it's our lives as well. Our conduct is also our confession. Titus 1 and 16 reads, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. We cannot profess Jesus with our mouths and then deny Him with our lives. 1 John 2 and 4 states, The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. You can say all the right things, but if your words are not supported by evidence, by righteous living, then they're hollow. I mean, if words were enough, then Jesus wouldn't have had to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. True confession is an expression of the heart, not just the mouth. And it was Jesus who also said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
The words that we speak are a product of our heart. Our words reflect our spiritual condition. Our faith must be spoken, but not just in word, in deed as well. A saving relationship with Jesus Christ is something that we acknowledge continually over the span of our lives as we live out our baptism. It's through our daily confession that we declare to the world who we belong to and why. I mean, if he has truly rescued us and changed our lives, if he is, like we talked about last week, rescuing us at this moment, if he is king of our lives, we can't help but confess and to talk about him to anyone who will listen. Back in 1990, Brett Butler left the San Francisco Giants in free agency to go and play for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, Brett Butler was a beloved figure in San Francisco. They adored him as a player. And if you know anything about baseball, you know that the Giants and the Dodgers are bitter rivals. I mean, there's no worse betrayal in the sports world than for one to leave the Red Sox and go to the Yankees or somebody to leave the, the Giants and go to the Dodgers or the Cubs and go to the Cardinals or vice versa. And so he left San Francisco to go play for the enemy. But what was interesting is that next season, the first game that the Dodgers played back in San Francisco when they introduced the players, the Giants fans cheered for Brett Butler when he was introduced. They gave him a standing ovation. They still loved Brett Butler, even though he left and went to the Dodgers. And you know what Brett Butler did? He turned and walked over to his new manager, Tommy Lasorda, and gave him a big hug. Now, Giants fans hated Tommy Lasorda worse than they hated the Dodgers. And so all the cheers immediately turned to boos. They immediately turned on Brett Butler. There was no love shown for him at that point. And after the game, he was asked about it. And he said, I just wanted to send the message. I'm not a giant anymore. I'm a Dodger. People should have no doubt as to who we serve. People should have no doubt as to who is king of our lives. People should have no doubt as to what team we play for or what side that we're on. Some in the world may try to claim us still. They may still cheer us and think, well, he's still one of us. No, no, no. I'm not one of you. I love you. I want you to come be on this side, but I'm not one of you anymore. I don't play for that team. There is no doubt whose side I'm on. I'm on the winning team. And I don't care who knows it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day together. We pray that as we go out this week that we can be the church, we can be your ambassadors in the world, that we can be salt and light. Help us, God, to make a difference. Help us to be your mouthpiece, but help us, Lord, to not only say it, but to live it. May we treat confession as a lifestyle and not just words. We love you, we thank you, and it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here. If we can help you tonight in any way, David's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?